want to welcome you again to Wildlife Baptist Church. Thank you for worshiping with us. Thank you for joining us as we open God's Word today. Uh, before I get into it, I just wanted to uh, say thank you to so many of you who stepped up. You know, we put out the call last week that some of the elderly people in Palolo needed, um, needed food, needed toilet paper, things like this, because they couldn't leave their homes and all. And and you guys really stepped up in a big way. We delivered 30 boxes yesterday. Um, we got about, uh, from the church, like over $700 in donations uh, that we used to purchase food. Plus, uh, Time Supermarket came and um, delivered, I mean, didn't deliver, but they, they donated to us a 30, 30 bags, 30 15-pound bags of rice, which was great, and also... Um, uh, 60 cans of spam so they they jumped in too and really helped out so um, we're going to give you a way that perhaps you can say thank you to to times you know look for that in the in the letters that i send out every week and it'd be a way maybe you can send a card and just thanking them for partnering with us well today we start a, a new um, series and it's always great to start new series i I love it. I love, you know, I, I love the series we're doing on how God loves us. And in some ways, this is a continuation of it. And it's also a continuation of our overarching series, which is, you know, what does it mean to be a healthy church? Because in the book that we're going to go to, the book of Ruth, we're actually going to see what it, you know, one of the like fundamental characteristics of a, of a healthy, mature Christian. Um, and surprisingly, we're not going to see it so much in Ruth. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of people, you know, myself included, you know, reading through the book of Ruth, I, my focus is on Ruth so much and, and seeing the story between Ruth and Boaz and, and this great story and love story and, and it's awesome and, you know, Ruth's love for Naomi and all. But if you actually go back and read the story carefully, and you see how many times Ruth speaks. It's, it's very little. It's, it's actually Naomi and Boaz who speak so much more uh, in this. And the focus of the story uh, from the very beginning is actually on Naomi. And so Naomi is the, is the, you know, the story is about Naomi and her relationship to God. And again, we miss this a lot because, again, uh, the story of Ruth and Boaz is so you know, fascinating. If, if you were to make a, a movie about this, you would focus on Ruth and Boaz and you wouldn't so much on, on Naomi and God, you know, maybe you would, you know, focus secondly on Naomi and Ruth and things like that. And, and that's where our, our human, you know, like kind of eyes want to go. We want to go to that love story. And so, and in so doing, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great story. But, but when we do that, we miss the bigger story. We miss the story of how God and has, has impacted Naomi's life and what Naomi's faith is really all about. And so as we read this, you know, I want you to you know, see that. And if you read through the book of Ruth again, I encourage you to read it with those, those eyes. Um, you know, we, we talked about... You know, several months ago about um, uh, a study that, you know, Eric had, Eric Dissinger had read, and it was part of our talking about worldviews, and it was this, 
this um, sur survey that was done about um, American Christians who, who consider themselves practicing Christians. You know, they, were, they were attending church and somehow involved. And among those Christians, the, the dominant view of, of God, who God is, is, is a non-demanding God who blesses them. That's, this is the dominant view. And I would probably guess that even for people who aren't practicing Christians or regularly involved in church, and even people who aren't Christians at all, when they think of God, that's the kind of God that they want. They want a non undemanding God, so one who doesn't really expect anything out of them, but who takes care of them, who, who protects them. And, and that's, that's really our desire. We, we, want a, we want a protector God. And, and, if, and we really, you know, in some sense, think if we can't have a protector God, if God isn't going to protect us, then what's he good for? Because that's all we really want. We want God to protect us and pretty much leave us alone. And so any kind of God who, who might want to lead us or, you know, God forbid, teach us, you know, if, if that's the, you know, that kind of God, uh, no. We, we don't, we just want the God who lets us live our lives and then saves us. I don't know if you've seen those, if, if you watch um, sometimes on, online they have these videos and then they have these videos of dads and dads who, who uh, save their kids. You know, a kid is, you know, spinning around and about to fly off the, merry, you know, the little carousel merry-go-round on the playground and dad grabs them. You know, kid falls down, he saves them and all this other stuff. And that's kind of our, our you know, idea of God. We want God to just let us live our lives do whatever we want, no matter how safe, how dangerous, how smart, how stupid, just let us do it. And then when we get in trouble, please, you know, reach down, save us. And if you do that, God, if that's the, you know, if you can uphold your side of the bargain, then, hey, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to follow you, but not really. I'm really just going to expect you to be there whenever I get in trouble. And so this is, this is the view. And again, a lot of people don't want to deal with a God who won't protect them. They'll even make deals like, you know, I'll follow you as long as you bless me. I'll do what you say as long as my life is going well. As long as, you know, there's, you know, there's no calamities that overwhelm me. As long as things are going okay, I'm, I'm with you. And again, it's this this, this idea that we want a God who protects us. Let me tell you, the Bible does tell us that God protects us, that he can, he can be a mighty fortress, as Martin Luther wrote, that he can be a strong tower. But that's only part of the picture of who God is. If you really want to understand the Bible, if you really want to understand what it means to be a child of God, then you have to develop what I sometimes call, and I don't mean to patronize, but you need to develop big boy and big girl Christianity. Big boy and big girl view of God. If you're a baby Christian and all you can think about is, I want a God who will bless me and save me, 
from trouble, okay, that's fine. You're a baby Christian, you're, you're new in your faith, you're learning, you're growing. But if you've been a Christian for any amount of time and you still have that view of God, your, your, your faith, it's, it's, it's stopped. It's stunted. And what's scary is that it's precarious. In other words, as soon as things don't start going your way or as soon as you, know, you start having you know, problems and dangers in your life and God's not bailing you out, then you bail out on God. And again, this, if you're young in your faith, if you're new in your faith, I get it and it's okay. You, you will keep growing and you will keep, you'll get a deeper understanding of who God is. But if, but if you've been a Christian for any period of time and you still think of God as an undemanding God there to bless you, there to protect you, and that's your fundamental understanding of God, Please, you know, understand what the message of Ruth is. Understand that the, that the message is not about just God takes care, that God miraculously provides. Look at Naomi. Really focus on her and understand her faith because her faith is being held up in this story as something that we should want to be like we should want to emulate we should want to have the faith of Naomi and so this 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 book it's not a hundred percent sure when it's written but we know when it's what time it's written about and it's written uh, about the time of, of of the judges sometime a few generations before King David is going to come along and so it's written during this time, and during this time, the, the, it's not really a nation of Israel. There hasn't been a king, there's no kingdom. I sometimes describe it as a, a loose confederation of tribes. And they're tribes that, are, that, that at one point in their history were, did something pretty radical. They didn't unite around ethnicity. They united themselves around an idea. They did it, they united themselves around the promise. And it wasn't so much a promise made to each other. You know, when we think about the social contract in our society, which is being kind of tested now with the coronavirus. You know, when we think about that, it's, a, it's an agreement between us and our leaders, or it's an agreement, you know, that, that each of us will, will abide by laws, or, or, you know, somehow there's this contract social contract that we've made but with Israel it's different at this time it's not so much a social contract they made with each other it's a covenant that they've made with God they've agreed to this this idea and the idea is we will be governed by God and we will get our laws from God and so they have this covenant and as we can see in the history um, after Joshua into Judges, the reason I call it a loose confederation, it's because that's kind of what it looks like to me. It looks like these tribes are kind of sort of trying to follow, but the whole story of Judges is the story of, of part or, or some or all of the tribes kind of 
assimilating into the, the neighboring um, you know, cultures, starting to worship all the false gods, forgetting this promise that they made to God. And then God brings judgment on them, and then he raises up a judge, a deliverer. And so they're going through that, that cycle when it's kind of summed up where it says, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so this is the time. You've got people that are faithful, who know the covenant, trying to follow, you know, what's there in the laws. And then you have that mixed in with, you know, kind of assimilating into some of the, the, the nearby cultures, which may involve cultural practices, um, but it's also involved, you know, worship of, of false gods. So we're going to go and we're going to read part of the text in Ruth. We're going to read part of the text and then we'll make our points as we go a little different from how I usually do it. I usually just read the whole text because it's smaller. But today the text is a little longer. So we're going to read part of the text and then uh, talk about the point that's really brought out in each part of the text. So Ruth chapter 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left there with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we get this story, okay, and, it, and, and really kind of to sum up the beginning of the story, if you don't know how the story is going to end, if this is the first time you ever saw this story, okay, if it's the first time you ever saw this or heard this story, then here's what you would think. Here's some dudes and his wife, and they're nothing special. And in fact, when it was famine was in their land, they went to try to go live somewhere else nearby. But, you know, at, you know as far as who these people are, if we didn't know how this story is going to unfold, they just are presented as just ordinary people, ordinary Israelites, you know, and in fact, if anything, they're from what seems to be, you know, one of the, the, the lesser tribes. And so he, you know, he's, the, the story is being presented to us, but there's something that's going on here in the story. We've, we see that, first of all, they are sojourning outside of, of, Israel's area, Israel's territories, and then we see that that they've taken their sons have taken on Moabite wives. So not only have they have they sojourned outside, it seems like they're kind of settling in there. And of course, there's these problems. First of all, Naomi's husband dies, and then her two sons die. 
And again, the way this is presented is that this isn't just her two sons, this is her only sons. And this becomes a huge problem because Naomi is out of her own country, away from her own family, and she doesn't have any of the men that were supposed to be the ones to take care of her. Her husband was supposed to protect her and provide for her as she, you know, supported and protected, I mean, provided for him. And then after he died, you know, the idea was the sons would continue to take care of, of, of mom and they're all gone. And what did this mean? This meant that for the rest of Naomi's life, she was going to be in, in poverty. Even if she made it back to her, to her own um, home, even then, you know, who's there? You know, her parents more than likely died. She may have, you know, siblings of her own. But if she, when she comes back, she's really going to be in a life of, of poverty, destitute for the, for the rest of her life. And so this, this, is, this is how the story opens. It opens with this kind of common family sojourning, and then all of a sudden you have these problems. And what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that, 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 that God doesn't promise protection from all the problems and struggles of life. That even for faithful, faithful followers of Christ, there's no protection, no protection from all the problems and the struggles of life. This, again, it's, it's, a, it's a misconception we sometimes have as, as, um, as Christians. We, we sometimes have this idea that when we become Christians that somehow God is supposed to bless us. And by blessing us, what we mean by that is that God just keeps life as sunshiny as possible. And that we keep having, you know, whatever needs or wants we might think we need or want. And that they're, they're always provided. But it's, it's just not that way. In fact, everybody in this story, this is, a, this is what makes Ruth somewhat unusual, this story, is that everybody in the story is presented as being a good person. Everybody in the story has some level of faith in God. Everybody in the story is, you know, is thinking about the other people in some level, some way, caring about the other people. Everybody in the story is that way. There's, and, and, and yet they still have struggles. There's still famine. They still have, you know, the death of Elimelech, the death of Naomi's sons. These problems keep coming. The challenges are there. And so we've, you know, we, 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 we see this being set up this way. And here's what we're trained to do. We're trained to do this. If you're a good um, American and you're a good American Christian, then here's what you're trained to do. You're trained to think like this. Yeah, things are bad, but they're going to get better. That's, that's what we're trained to do. We're trained to, to think like, you know, things are, 
you know, things are hard, but it's because God is teaching Naomi a lesson. And she's going to come out all the better for it in the end. And that's what we always think. We always think that somehow, you know, what gets us through our struggles in life is that, you know, soon it's all going to be better. And we, we hold on to that, that promise, you know, that we think is a promise from God. Again, listen to, to Naomi. Focus on, on Naomi. This isn't in her head, okay? As we read what she says and what she does, this is not what she's thinking, okay? So we look at this next section, beginning in verse 6. So the husband has died. It's been 10 years. The two sons have died. And then it says, She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way uh, to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each one of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. What we find here is, is we find that, that Naomi is starting to give us a hint as to her mindset. She doesn't think this story is going to end well. She doesn't, she's, she's looked at the situation. She doesn't think there's going to be this, this miraculous, you know, rescue. And so she does what someone who has unconditional love does. She doesn't think of herself. She doesn't think like, hey, at least for the rest of my life, I know I have these two daughters-in-law who, who obviously care about me and love me, and they'll take care of me. And, and so, you know, if there's food back in Israel, we're going to go back, and they'll take care of me. I'm good. And she's, she's not that way. She doesn't she doesn't think about herself. She just thinks about them. And she knows, like, these, these, these young women, they're, you know, they're probably in their 20s. If they got married when people typically, when women typically got married, they were probably, 
12 to 14 years old, 10 years have passed, they're, they're somewhere in their 20s. And, he, and she knows that, that they're still of the age where, where they can have a husband. They're still of the age where, where they, can, they can have children. And so she, she knows that the best thing for them is to stay with their own people and to remarry and to have, have a good life. But you, you can see this, this love that, that they, they have for one another. That there's this, this sacrificial, this unconditional love. And we're going to find out, especially if we're going to get it really clear from Naomi and from Ruth, that this comes from their faith in God and their love for God. You see, you, it's one thing to say God loves us unconditionally, and it's, a, it's another thing to say God loves us unconditionally and gives us the ability to love unconditionally. But it doesn't make a lot of sense to say back to God, God, I love you unconditionally. And the reason it doesn't make a whole lot of sense is because he's already provided so much for us. He's already given us so much. I mean, he saved us from the curse of sin and death. He grants to us eternal life. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He does so much for us that it's, even if I say I love you unconditionally, he's already blessed us in so many ways. He's poured grace upon grace into our lives. And so it's hard for us to really say that we can love God unconditionally. Plus, God doesn't need anything. I mean, it's, he doesn't even need our unconditional love. So where can we show unconditional love? Well, if I have unconditional love for God that comes from this faith in God, then it seems that God would certainly direct my love towards other people, towards people who do have needs, towards people who cannot, who cannot pay me back, who cannot reciprocate. And if, if, if that happens, then, then I get the opportunity to exercise unconditional love. I cannot show unconditional love to God that raises to, rises to the level of, of loving our enemies because God's not my enemy. And so this unconditional love, this comes from this unconditional faith. Well, we are given opportunities to show it when we show this to other people. And if you cannot really say, I have unconditional love for God, I have great love for God, I have God's love in my life, if that's not being extended to other people, if you still treat certain people poorly, if you still you know, talk down to them because they don't measure up to your standards, if, if you still ignore people's needs or trivialize their needs and don't really you know, try to understand things from, from other people's perspectives, if you're doing all of that, and yet you're claiming like, oh, God is doing so much in your life. You know, I don't, I don't know how that goes together. That, 
the reason God pours out his love upon me, the reason he empowers me to be able to love the way he loves is so that I can love the people around me that certain level I might find unlovable. And that's the, you know, that's the, th- the thing. It's, it's they, they go together. Love for God, love for each other. They're, they're connected. But what, even though I cannot have unconditional love for God, or I can have it, but it doesn't really show up because he's done so much, what we're going to see from Naomi in the next section, what we're going to see is that we can have unconditional faith. Unconditional faith. Okay? So even though we can't show unconditional love for God, any unconditional love for God we have, it's because it comes from Him to us. We can have unconditional faith. And we use a word for that. Um, sometimes you might have heard this word. You might have even said this word. You might have sung this word. It's the word surrender. And surrender is this, is this same idea of unconditional faith. God, I have unconditional faith in you. And when we have that, that is the, the uncommon thing that we can show to God. We can show unconditional love to each other. We can show sacrificial love to each other. But we cannot show unconditional love to God in in any real way, any meaningful way. But we can show unconditional faith. You see, Orpah is a good person. She's presented in this story as a good person. She loves Naomi. She wants to stay too. But she hasn't risen to the level of having a faithful, sacrificial love. That's Ruth. Ruth is pictured that way. Naomi's pictured that way by telling her daughters-in-law to go home, to go back to her, their people. But Orpah is still presented as a good person. She's still presented as someone who loves, but her love has limits. And I suspect, even though we don't get much more from Orpah, you know, her story, we don't get any more from her story, really, I suspect it's because she hasn't reached the level of unconditional faith. Naomi has, and Ruth has too. And we're going we're gonna to see that in the next section. And I w- just want to tell you, as Christians, you can say all you want things like, you know, I surrender all, or, you know, that, that Jesus has all of me, he has all my life. He, you can say it all you want. But as long as you keep holding on to attitudes and actions and words and, and you know, tones and, and habits and anything else that's not Christ-like, and you hold on to it, and you justify it, you haven't really surrendered all. You know, if, if you are obsessed with the need to be needed and that's why you do all that you do, you haven't really surrendered to God. If you are someone who, who, who is driven more by your fears than by your faith, you haven't really surrendered to God. 
If you have anything that you, that maybe people have pointed out to you, other Christians, we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, about speaking the truth in love to one another, and people in love have spoken to you about things, and, and you refuse to acknowledge, or if you acknowledge, you just, in your head, whether you say it or not, just say, that's just how I am. You haven't really surrendered. Surrendered means everything. Everything you know and everything you don't know. As long as we hold on to things, we haven't surrendered. And if we haven't surrendered, we don't have unconditional faith. And if we don't have unconditional faith, that will place limits on our love for God and our love for each other. Well, let's keep reading here. It says, And she said, and this is Naomi speaking, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Such a powerful statement. And what's so awesome about this is, is this book of Ruth is written, it's written, you know, about a time and it's written in a time um, when, you know, Gentiles, non-Israelites, non-Jewish people, you know, they were, they were seen as unclean. They were seen as, you know, again, idolaters, worshiping uh, false gods. And, and what we find here is we find Ruth, the, the Moabitess, she's the one who makes this incredibly beautiful statement, powerful statement, something that probably most Israelites could not have said and really meant. And I would gather even some of us, even some of us who are Christians, even some of us who say that, that, that we've accepted Jesus Christ and our, and our lives have been changed, that we can't even really honestly say what this Gentile, Moabitess, woman who didn't even know Jesus Christ, didn't have the Holy Spirit helping her. She could say it, and not only did she say it, she backed it up. Not with just a few actions, a few, few days, a few weeks, a few months. She backed it up with her life. It's amazing. So, you know, this, this, this unconditional faith. R read it again. Look, look at that part. It says, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And then she invites the Lord. If I don't keep my commitment, if I don't keep this promise I'm making to you right now, Naomi, I want God to, to punish me even more than he would intend to punish me now. 
incredible. So powerful. And she has this unconditional faith attached to this unconditional love. Notice what she's saying. What's likely to play out. Neither one of them thinks this story is going to end well from an earthly sense. All they know is that if the, rest of the, if the rest of our lives is full of trouble, if the rest of our lives are full of struggles and challenges, if that's the rest of our lives, it's okay. Because we have God and we have each other. Because we have God and because we have each other, we will face whatever lies ahead. Just think about that. Think about our relationships, not just with God, but our relationships with each other and our churches. How many of us, you know, can say that? How many people in, in our church today, how many people can we make this same kind of commitment to? To say, we don't know what the future holds. And even if the future looks bleak and impossible, here's what we do know. We have God and we have each other. And we're going to face it together. It's amazing. You see, unconditional faith and unconditional love, you can't have one without the other. Ruth shows us this. Naomi's going to show us this even more. You see, Ruth verbalizes her love you know, for Naomi. And Naomi had verbalized her love for Ruth. That's why she wanted Ruth to go. And it's why Ruth wants to stay. That same love expressed in different ways. This unconditional love. It's pretty amazing. See, Ruth knows if this plays out the way it plays out, she goes to Israel. And she's not even going to have what Naomi has. You see, when Naomi was in Moab, she at least had two daughters-in-law. When Ruth and Naomi go to Israel, someday Naomi is going to die. And if things play out the way they naturally play out, she'll die first, which now means Ruth will be a foreign woman in a foreign, in a foreign land. And she's on her own. She'll be well past the age of, of getting married, well past the age of, of, of bearing children. And so she knows what lies ahead. No matter how bleak it was for Naomi, Naomi at least had the two daughters-in-law that they would, they would be able to, to stay together. But Ruth, Ruth is going to be in a worse situation. And it doesn't matter. It's unconditional faith, unconditional love. They're connected. It's why, in a way, you should be kind of afraid of unconditional faith. Because unconditional faith is this idea of surrender. And when you attach unconditional faith and unconditional love, I'm going to tell you 
or maybe I should say I'm going to warn you, it's going to lead you to some very strange places. It's going to lead you into some pretty kind of maybe awkward relationships. It's going to pull you out of whatever is comfortable. And it's going to move you in places that you never thought you could, you could go. So the last part of the chapter. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Again, look at Naomi. Look at what she says. She's not, she, there's no like, like, like this, you know, romanticizing of the situation. There's no like, hey, it's all going to turn out okay. There's no hope here. This is her life. But I also want you to notice that she's not blaming Satan. She's not blaming anybody else. She's saying, God has brought this into my life. This is the God who blessed me is now the God who has brought this challenge, the struggles in my life. Notice she's not saying, you know, don't change my name to bitter. Change my name to lesson learned. Because, you know, that's really what God was doing. He was trying to teach me a lesson. No. As far as we can see, she's not learning anything from this. As far as we can see, she's just trying to figure out how to survive every day. How to deal with the reality of her situation. None of that. But make no mistake, even though the God who sent her out full has brought her back empty, even though that same, it's the same God, she still loves him. She still follows him. She has not abandoned him. She's not going to curse God and die. She accepts. She accepts everything that God would bring. And it's that kind of unconditional faith that is so uncommon, so uncommon, not just in the world, but even uncommon in the church. And, and we, we see her have this unconditional faith. You see, unconditional faith means we trust God at all times, no matter what he does or where he leads. No matter what he does or where he leads. That's unconditional faith. And yes, we do trust something. And here's what we trust. We trust that God is in control. 
Naomi never thinks that God is not in control. She never thinks that this is just the weird luck and happenstances of life that brought this in. No, God is always in control. And we also trust that God has a purpose. And it may not be a purpose that you or I are going to actually see or experience in this life. But that he has a greater purpose and that we're part of that greater purpose. You see, when we make the story about you and me, or me and God, or you and God, when we make that the main story, then we think all of God's purposes have to somehow do with whatever we're going through in life. But when we understand that it's not simply a relationship between God and me, but it's God and his creation, God and humanity, God and the church, God and his people. When we see that, we understand that sometimes we're the ones who are going to have to struggle for the greater purpose that God has. You know, in, in, in the military, you know, I, I, when I, I used to read a lot and pay attention to like you know military military strategies and all of that and and in the military like if they're going to engage in a battle they have like they do like projections like how many people are likely to get wounded how many people are likely to get killed you know how many casualties are you going to have and then they have to determine is it worth it is it worth it to engage in that battle given you know the the numbers that, that are predicted, number of casualties predicted. And everybody in the military understands that's how it works. And so if you go into a battle and they've projected that there's going to be 5% loss, y- y- if you're worried about whether you're that 5%, well then you'll never really engage in the battle where you'll be so upset or you might wonder why you joined the military in the first place. But everybody going into the battle doesn't know who the 5% is. And yeah, it's terrible to be the 5%. It's terrible to be the one who lost their arm, lost their leg. It's terrible to be the one who dies. But there's an understanding that if we're going to achieve this objective that we've decided is, is, worth, is worth it, we're going to move forward. And you might think, well, why doesn't God just save us all? Why doesn't God set up scenarios where there's, there's zero casualties? Well, there is a, a deeper question there. And it's one that, you know, it has to do with the question of suffering. And I don't really have time to get into it right now. But just understand, Naomi can say what Naomi says because she knows that God's concern is for her, yes, but his, his plan is bigger. And so she can say, call me bitter. So we know, if, if we know God is in control, and we know that God has a purpose and a plan that's bigger than us, when we do that, we know that trusting God doesn't mean he's going to lead us to only green pastures. That he's only going to make us winners all the time, that somehow it's all going to work out in the end. 
And I know that's hard to hear sometimes because if you're like me, if I'm sick, if I'm hurting, I, I want it to go away. And I've, I've never had a condition where it's not going to go away. It's not going to get better. So I can't tell you I've had my faith tested that way. But those of you who are in the middle of something, and it's been weeks, months, years, decades, I, I can't tell you I know how you feel. But I can tell you this. Naomi did. Naomi did. And Naomi found strength to continue going forward because she still believed God was in control. And she still believed God has a purpose for all things. And so I just want us to, to, to again, focus on this story. And I, and, I, and I want you to know that God does bless us and that God wants to bless us and he wants to pour out blessings on us. But we like to decide what the blessings are. You know, I was so grateful when we, we, we delivered the boxes to Palolo and it's so great. Most of the time when we do stuff like that, it's great. Nobody says like, Oh, uh, I don't like tuna. Give me something else. Or I don't eat spam. Nobody says that. They're so grateful that, that we, we, we provided food for them. But I think sometimes with God, that's what we think. We think, God, we want you to bless us. And then we get to tell him the list of ways he can bless us. And God says, no, when I bless you, it is for whatever your highest good is. God does bless us, but his focus is not on giving us stuff or necessarily rescuing us out of things. It's always about preparing us. It's always about equipping us. It's always about helping us fulfill our purpose. It's always about testing the faith that we say we have, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. You see, when we do this, we begin to see ourselves and see the world with his eyes. And we begin to love with his heart. And we're not going to get there if all we want to do is live in a comfortable kind of Disneyland world where a protector God saves us from all our problems, but more or less leaves us alone. <laughs>